A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Welcome to the Rings of Power Lorecast, where the Lorehounds, your guides to Tolkien's world of Middle-earth. I am John, and my usual co-host David is currently riding horses in the land that one day will be Rohan, and will return for the season finale. So today, I am joined by Aaron from Bald Move. Thanks for being here, Aaron. It is a pleasure. Thanks for having me, John. Alright, so this is our Lorecast on the Rings of Power, Season 1, Episode 6, Udun. In this episode, we have five segments. A History of Mount Doom. A few details on the orcs, sorry, Uruks. An audio diary sent by David from Rohan. The last part of my interview with returning Tolkien scholar Marilyn Pukila and a listener feedback segment. Before we get started, here's a quick reminder that you can send feedback to secondageatbaldmove.com and we'll get to those questions on the next episode we record. If you want to talk Tolkien with us sooner, join us on the Bald Move Discord, link in the description and at baldmove.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our Firehose feed, The Lorehounds, to get all our content about The Rings of Power and other shows this fall like The White Lotus and The Wheel of Time. And please, if you have a moment, rate and review our podcast to help other people find it. So, Aaron, before we get into our main topics, yes. you and I have done some feedback segments this uh, this season, but we haven't really sat down and talked about our general feelings on the season so far. So, how are you feeling? I- I've said I- I've made an analogy for how I feel um, by talking about how I felt about season one of Foundation because that was a similarly very epic thing that uh, would be very hard to adapt. It had a lot of money thrown at it um, and it had some things that just fired off. I, I don't I don't know if you actually saw Foundation. I saw like the first couple episodes. Okay, so there was a couple things that worked really, really well. The intrigue around the Empire, the clone dynasty, um, y- you know, the Harry Seldon stuff I thought was really good. And then the stuff that kind of struggled was the things that were happening on Terminus. You know, they had this other plot line. And it's so eerie because, like, I think Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power has got the same thing. Like, fully two-thirds are just executing at a very high level, no notes. You know, everything with the dwarves, everything with the Harfoots, everything with um, the elves and dwarves relationships. Um, And increasingly, I'm even kind of on board with Galadriel and what's going on there. But like the stuff that um, the stuff in the Southlands and the, you know, some of the Numenorean stuff is just not doing it for me. Mm. And I don't think 
any of them are fatal flaws. It's just that they need to, to, to be tightened up. Uh, the difference between uh, Foundation and, and Rings of Power is Foundation was show run by David S. Goyer, who has just got a ton of experience with science fiction fantasy production through Hollywood for 20 years. And the guys running the Rings of Power are literally who. Like, I'm not... Right. I've delved a little bit deeper into their backgrounds, and it would not be an exaggeration to say that Jim and I are essentially <laughs> as qualified to do the Rings of Power as these guys are, which is to say not at all. So... I don't like that's the thing to me. I always wonder is like, why, if you spend a half billion dollars, do you get such green showrunners? And it's there's precedent, you know, Game of Thrones had the double D's who had kind of fuck, but but even they had a lot more um, experience. So I actually think there's there's huge room. I'm sure these guys learn a lot on the job. Um, and I think there's huge room for improvement going into season two. And I don't think they've done anything fatal. Like, even as, as dumb as I think this volcano, volcano thing is. And it could be not as dumb as I, me and Jim think. Because, uh, like I said, it could be easily resolved by Galadriel just having some just just magical, res- you know, like she essentially creates a white barrier of light like Gandalf does at the <laughs> bridge of, of, Ka- uh, of Kazakh Doom with the Balrog. And then I'm, I'm suddenly like, you might be pissed about it because I don't know, maybe Gladriel's not that powerful. But I'm like, okay, fuck it. It's it's token soft magic, easy way out. It's still a little schmuck bait because they clearly want you to think that oh my god, everyone's going to be wiped out, and they're not going to be. But like, even if that's as stupid as we think it is, that doesn't really jeopardize the future of the show, you know. So I, I think it's I think it's an uneven show with an amazing visuals and a technical execution, and they're just not quite there in some of the characters and plot. Um, but yeah, that's that's how that's how I'm feeling about it. Uh, what about you? I'm in a similar place to you, I think, because I'd say that right now I'm at about an eight out of ten. But if I took away the visuals, I'd be at about a six out of ten. It's just very uneven. Um, even if I take away my lore goggles for a minute, the writing is a little sloppy. A lot of things yeah. are just not connecting. And mm-hmm. uh, it's it's funny because when I watched this last episode, I was just enthralled by the action and the suspense and the visuals. And it was really excellent TV to me on first watch. Like, it, it just a great episode of television. And then... I kept thinking about it and thinking about it, and each layer I peeled back, I was like, huh, I don't know about that one. I don't know about this choice. I don't know about this choice. (laughs) So I don't know. I don't know if it's like, I'm sort of thinking about early Game of Thrones versus late Game of Thrones, whereas early Game of Thrones maybe had a lower production value, but it it had so many deep layers to it, and the writing was just so connecting and good. And then late Game of Thrones was sort of a beautiful train wreck. Yes. And I feel like we're we're in between the two right now. And they mm. need to get to where not only the visuals are prestige, but the writing is also prestige. And I agree with you about the showrunners. I'm thinking to myself, like, maybe they just they don't fire the people because they do seem to have a passion for it. But maybe it's time that they bring in an extra set of hands. Somebody who's going to say, no, that doesn't make sense when they bring in something. Yeah. I mean, you could like, I mean, honestly, all this stuff could be fixed in a writer's room. It's, it's funny because like early game, 
the first season of Game of Thrones, like when the Double D's turned that in, they only had like seven and a half hours of con- or no, it was something like eight and a half hours. They didn't have enough to fulfill their contractual obligations to HBO for ten episodes of television. Hmm. And like, fuck, what do we do? And they're like, you know what? Some of these characters are thin. Let's go back and add a whole bunch of soliloquies and monologues, and that's where you get Littlefinger talking about his scheming in front of two women at. Uh, you know, to to um, sex workers pleasuring each other. Um, it's something they could do in a single set on a in a single room with like a main character and two extras, and they did that. Like that's how Cersei and um, King uh, Robert had their little uh, mm. uh, talk to each other. Um, and you look back, and that's some of the best work where you had these two writers like come up with something that like really gets at the heart of these characters and have them sit there for five minutes and the camera just kind of look at them. And I don't know that you could do that on this show because all of the sets and all the settings are so freaking expensive that, you know, it's, it's just like you, by the time you knew you needed that kind of stuff, it's already plus they're the opposite. They have a very constrained, they can only do, you know, to my understanding, eight, episodes a season and there's probably kind of limits like you can't probably have 90 minute episodes or things like that so i think i, I yeah, again i don't know why they went to such inexperienced showrunners and such a high profile show when there had to been any number of ones that would have you know loved to do this um and had a lot more experience but again it, it's not and, and i thought this episode was really good i thought that the the yeah i was a little worried up front because i thought that tower thing the solo a defense of the tower could have gone poorly, but the way it was constructed, like, okay. And I thought the episode worked really, really well until the end. Um, and then they're doing like a, what I would consider a needless cliffhanger. Cause what was awesome was holy shit. Mount Doom just erupted for the first time and they're right. choking out the sun with his gas and the orcs are going to be super powered now. And, and they're going to fight like, <laughs> and, and the Numenorans are going to be lucky to get out of that and get back to the shores uh, in one piece. And now the Queens suffered humiliation. Why the fuck do you need to roll the whole fucking mountain down on these people? So that are, so like I, yeah, it's like I said. I think eight. That's probably right. Eight out of ten. And if 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 you if you strip the four K, you know, make your eyes bleed visuals. It's it's going to come for. Uh, it's it's going to be lesser than that. But um, but yeah, I don't know. And, and the thing is, is like unlike Hot D, where I'm I'm listening to a lot of different podcasts. Like I'm essentially only listening to you and and our po- podcast. So I don't know what the wider community is saying about the show. Um, I don't I don't even really get on uh, Reddit to, to look at what the Rings of Power subreddit's doing. Do you have, like, your fingers on the pulse? Like, what is what do you think, setting aside our biases, what is the kind of, like, collective community response? I am seeing a lot of mixed stuff. I'm seeing some people are like, okay. this is the greatest show I've ever seen, and some people are saying this is a travesty. Which I can see that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if we're going on visuals, this is the most beautiful show I've ever seen. Hands down. Right. Well, and you also have, like, the Walking Dead effect where, like, the uh, the uh, a lot of people watching The Walking Dead back in the day probably were comic book or zombie fans or something. And this is probably amongst the – they're not usually watching prestige television, but they are lured in by the genre. And, mm-hmm. like, if all you're watching is, um, like, CW – uh, and sci-fi shit, and you go on The Walking Dead, like, holy fuck, this is the best. Like, oh my god, these are serious actors, and they're doing this and that, and all the big budget, and nothing looks stupid, and it's not 
But like if you've seen like Mad Men and Breaking Bad, like, oh, my God, the characters and writing are little yikes on this <laughs> show sometimes. So like I think it's entirely possible for you to think that this is the best show you've ever seen because it is the best looking show I've ever seen easily. Right. Um, but then, yeah, the the mix that that sounds about right because you got, you know, uh, even comparison in comparison to the Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings films. Um, I don't think it's, you know, the storytelling and the characters are as, as good as that. But then again, you know, they're essentially, they're writing all this based on appendix information. So yeah, they don't have a, a as clear a narrative as they could, you know, have. But that should be freeing, I would think, mm-hmm. you know? I, I, I mean, following along with you guys on House of the Dragon, because, you know, we're, we're not covering that on the Lorehounds, but we're following Bald Moves coverage a lot, and... The way that I see you getting joy out of seeing Mushroom's take or another Maester's take on different situations mm-hmm. and sort of the creative choices that go into this level of freedom of where a sentence can be broken down into like three scenes. Yeah. I wish that I had that in this show because there are <laughs> right. there are such varied writings from Tolkien. And again, we do have the issue of rights. But right. especially when you're inventing stuff, I mean, I just think that some things are missing here. I mean, you've talked about Isildur on your podcast and how he's kind mm-hmm. of a dick. He's kind of yeah. terrible on the show. And I agree yeah. with you. And when I look back at the writings, I see a character who has a tragic fall, not a not a deserved fall. You know, I don't think I don't think his situation with the ring is really earned. I think that that is something that you're supposed to understand as tragic in the Lord of the Rings. And part of that is Peter Jackson sort of framed him as this like maniacal villain at the beginning. Right. Of the, of the totally trilogy. corrupted by the ring. Right. But I feel like if you go back and if you watch this season of the Rings of Power, of course, well, you know, there's two, still two episodes to go. You watch this season of Ring of Power and then you watch Peter Jackson trilogy and you come away thinking that Isildur's just a just a fuck up. <laughs> You know, yeah. maybe his heart's in the right place, but also like he thinks he deserves things that he doesn't really deserve. And he wants he, he's he's entitled and narcissistic and he does things at the detriment to his friends and family without really thinking it through. And it's like there's this through line of like Isildur's kind of a fucking idiot. Yep. And you could do that, but that's a really weird choice. That would be like someone watching all the different Batman and be like, you know what? going to lean into the adam west interpretation because that's the that's the level of like geez you're yeah like you said you're supposed to understand that isildur's a once great man corrupted by the ring and whispered into by sauron and and manipulated but like i think he's just always kind of a fuck up which is kind of hilarious if they stick to it but i don't think it's what we were expecting well, I mean, you look at the way that they approach Aragorn in Peter Jackson's movies, and Aragorn in the books is has no character arc. He is ready to be king at the beginning of the Fellowship. He's just waiting for the right moment. He's waiting for circumstances right. to align. And I agree right. with Peter Jackson's decision to add a character art of self-doubt um, yeah. and things like that. That it was a great him. way to do that. That is a, mm-hmm. a an example of a good adaptation, a good change for the medium. Yeah. But... I think that Isildur, if we saw him having doubts and maybe not knowing how to approach life and have him grow like that, that would be great. But I don't like this, like, little shit Isildur <laughs> kind of thing that they're doing. Well, especially, and a lot of it is just so, they're treating this call to the western shores of Numenor, I guess, because they still, I don't think, have established this as 
a mystery. Mm-hmm. The woman calling out to his voice is a mystery. His motivations is a mystery. Where Anarian's at is a mystery. And that's just perplexing to me. Yep. Why the fuck haven't we had, at the very minimum, a family dinner scene where Isildur's like, I, I don't want to be in a sea cadet. I, 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 I keep hearing mom's voice. You know, she drowned a couple years ago. Like, why was it a reveal that his mom drowned? Right. And, like, like it's like, dun, dun, dun. Like, why wouldn't they? they so we just, all cards on the table, we know why he's doing these things. And maybe some of that would be worth it. Like, you know, if um, he's the only one that hears or his dad's like, you know, look, we're we're hanging on to our family's position by a thread here. We can't just, like, openly declare for the the elves and, uh, and Arion's put us in real danger here. And I need you to be like, but without those stakes, it's just these people acting bizarrely. And he's acting like a spoiled brat. And I don't like there's so many compelling mysteries like who the fucking stranger is and where is Sauron and all that stuff. Like why layer another mystery that is actively Mm -hmm. eroding your character's motivations, especially like an important character like Isildur and Elendil and, and that, that entire family. It, I don't know. Maybe there is a, a good reason. Um, but I just, I just can't, I just can't think of it. And it hasn't manifested yet. I totally agree. And I think that there are mysteries around Numenor that you can, bring out from the books and even from the appendices that sure. we're not seeing play out in the show yet. And I think yet, I think they have to do these mysteries. So we'll see where they go with that. I have one more uh, sort of thing I wanted to speculate with you about, which was who is Hellbrand and what did he do? Because that's been a big topic of discussion on the internet. I'm, I, I, I tried this out um, on Jim I'm starting to think he's actually Sauron. Mm. Um, I think that like the animosity he has with Adar, because uh, I think Adar is sincere and that he thinks he's killed Sauron at some point somehow. Yeah. He's, he's he's taken him off the board. And if you reimagine all of Halbrin's grievances are actually grievances that he had against his chief servant that turned against him and backstabbed him, that would be kind of cool. And Halbrand is... Because like it's like uh, you know if you if you if my recollection of the Cimmerillion and all and and the Legendarium and all that stuff is like the people in Numenor and the elves are just kind of dumb when it comes to Sauron <laughs> and like Morgoth too. It's like it's like you know well okay it's been an age you've learned your lesson we're gonna <laughs> completely take you and and you're gonna help us make pretty things we're gonna keep you know kind of like it, it it's and and but but like if you look at the also the fact that you know. Um, Sauron can, in like a Lucifer way, turn himself into this kind of like being of light and very charming and, right. and he's very manipulative. It would be kind of cool for him to kind of like show up and, and you know, pretend to be this long lost king from the Southlands and unite this people, but all to their detriment, you know. And, um, you know, he, he forges this close relationship with Numenor and they take him in. And then he, for, he uses that to forge a close relationship with the, the elves and make the rings. And it's like, I, that's what my leading theory is. The thing is, is here's another thing why the sack? What the fuck is this sack? Why? How? If it's so important that Browen can see it and be like, "Oh my God, my liege, my king," why don't we know what it is? What is in there? This is such horseshit. I'm like, yeah. So like, that's that's my leading theory. What do you think? I think that they are pointing us in that direction. At least there's actually a story in the chapter called "Of the Rings of Power in the Third Age." 
in the Silmarillion where at the beginning of the third age, at the beginning of the second age, Sauron is sort of teetering on the edge of should I go repent in Valinor or should I continue doubling down and being the new Morgoth? And we see Halbrand sort of struggling with a lot of moral choices here. We see uh, mm. somebody, I saw somebody on Reddit say this, and I don't remember who, so sorry for the lack of credit, but they were saying, you know, Halbrand talking to Galadriel of, it felt good to ride with you. Maybe that's Sauron saying, it actually felt really good to work with the elves towards something rather than against them. Well, that also that also ties into... Um Adar saying that Sauron kind of felt was like trying to heal Middle Earth and fix things when yeah, but the way he, he was doing that. it with an incredibly dark <laughs> stuff. I'm just because like they kept on flashing to the the hideous fortress and like his giant spiked helmet, and I'm just like I'm trying to imagine the guy from the prologue of Lord of the Rings just with a forge like trying to make peace, just want to make things pretty, and you know, but 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 yeah, there is a little bit. I, I did. I, for, I did not know or had forgotten that aspect of Sauron. The fact that he was kind of like, "Geez, this really went bad for us. Maybe I should get right with God. Maybe I should come to Jesus." Yeah. And him yeah. Ultimately, deciding, nah, nah, nah. It's the kids who are wrong. Um, he sends out a feeler to the to the number two of Manway, Aonwe, and he says, "Aonwe, who's a Maiar? He's one of the Maiar. Um, you know, what's the vibe over there? Can I come back free of any nonsense if I if I just." say I'm sorry and he's like listen I can't pardon you you're the same level as me you're gonna have to come back with me you know see the officer um, mm-hmm. you, you know have to come back to the station with me and mm-hmm. Sauron goes mm, no <laughs> I'm gonna stay Too right risky. here yeah. exactly he's where I am put any, yeah 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 that makes sense uh, but I think he's the most compelling like I'm now convinced that the stranger is not Sauron I, I think I, you're right I don't know that he's going to be good, um, and like I, I almost wonder if he's trying to warn against the wickedness coming, and like these these weird um, Swedish death metal elves uh, that are following him are kind of like our servants of Sauron or servants of Morgoth who mm. are trying to like put a stop to him um, before he can get you know like whatever this thing is where these one the blue wizards or other um, of the Maiar. I don't, I don't know, but like I, I don't think that he is going to be Sauron, even though they really no. baited it hard with that flaming eye. I think he's a very confused wizard. Yeah, yeah. Which that's like I said, it's like this is a lot longer period of stupor than Gandalf went through. But we <laughs> saw the same thing when Gandalf came back as the White. He had kind of forgotten aspects of himself and right. was kind of like had had amnesia. Uh, and until being with the people that he had been with before kind of jogged those memories back, and he recalled himself. So, right. of course, you know, he didn't come back in a giant flaming comet. <laughs> so right. Maybe, no, he came in sailing. Just, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I in in, in the the movies, he just kind of comes back in a forest in a in a in a blaze of light. But uh, oh, sorry, I meant um, when he first came in the third age. Got you, got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but like when he came back to join, you know, Legolas and Aragorn and, and Gimli, uh, so I, I think that could could be because I guess I just yeah, like if this guy turns out to be like Morgoth or Sauron, I just can't imagine either of those guys being. Although there is, I don't know, there is something to maybe Tolkien would appreciate the fact that like this this horrifying evil spirit could be gentled by something like the Harfoots, who are just about caring and giving and also abandoning each other to die when the going gets tough. I don't. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I Tolkien know. would have said, and I, I'm actually going to discuss this when we when we discuss orcs. But Tolkien would have said that anyone in his legendarium was redeemable, even Morgoth. Yeah. Sure. Because he's a Catholic. He's very and Christian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go repent. Go to confession, and Morgoth, you're fine. <laughs> yeah. And I think like even the Bible, like I, I I don't know what Bible scholars would say, but like probably Satan would be redeemable. It's just the idea that he's never gonna. Right. You know. Right. Like in theory, if he's like, you know, genuinely repented, but like he's not capable of that level of introspection and growth. So he's not going to. But it's not like because God's like, yeah, fuck this uh angelic being in particular. It's just the nature of, of him is not not gonna make him willing and able to do that. Right. So I think that's a good segue, actually. Why don't we jump right to orcs? Because the nature of orcs and whether they're redeemable is something that I think we need to talk about with genocidal Galadriel around. Mm. Uh, I mean, orcs do have debatable origin stories. Tolkien was really weird about it towards the end of his life. He was like, I don't know if they should be corrupted elves. He actually had the idea of maybe they predate Morgoth entirely. And maybe that they were just corrupted by Morgoth independently. But mm. Christopher, his son, who compiled the Silmarillion, he made the decision to go with this version of the creation of orcs that had elves being corrupted, the same as we saw Adar talking about. Mm-hmm. Which I always has been my favorite, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess the... the thing that troubled Tolkien was, first of all, his elves are supposed to be these perfect men before the fall. And second, it's like, well, can someone else's will overpower you so much that you're irredeemable? So I think those were the two things that troubled him. So here's here's the quote that they're basing this whole Adar scene off of. It's from the Silmarillion, page 47 in my version. Uh, quote is, But of those unhappy ones who were ensnared by Melkor, little is known of a certainty. For who in, of the living has descended into the pits of Atumno, that was Morgoth's fortress, Mm -hmm. or has explored the darkness of the councils of Melkor. Yet this is held true by the wise of Erasea, that all those of the Quendi who came into the hands of Melkor, ere Atumno was broken, were put there in prison, and by slow arts of cruelty were corrupted and enslaved. And thus did Melkor breed the hideous race of the orcs in envy and mockery of the elves of whom they were afterwards the bitterest foes. For the orcs had life and multiplied after the manner of the children of Iluvatar. And not that had life of its own, nor the semblance of life, could ever Melkor make since his rebellion in the Eindelindalei before the beginning. So Melkor can't create life. Mor- Melkor is Morgoth's other name. He cannot create life, yep. he can only corrupt it. That's a big theme in Tolkien. Right. So say the wise... And deep in the dark hearts, the orcs loathed their master, whom they served in fear, the maker only of their misery. This, it may be, was the vilest deed of Melkor and the most hateful to Iluvatar. So that's a big thing, too, is we're seeing that the orcs want to want to serve Adar because it's willing. And Adar is saying, you're brothers now. You're not just thralls. You're not just slaves. And whereas Sauron was overpowering the will of the orcs and sort of making them into his will, not their own. Yeah. So I think that yeah. that's actually a pretty good distillation of what was in the Silmarillion that we saw in the show. Yeah. And it also it's 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 I think it's um, 
it's useful that that's essentially the Peter Jackson take on it. You know, mm-hmm. like you saw Saruman recounting the history of the orcs to his first Urukai and talking about it. So, like, I think that's you know, if you if you want to keep all, it, it's always good to kind of dance by the tune that that kind of got you there in the beginning. Um, I I gotta understand. I never understand Tolkien's reluctance with this because, like, if the elves are men before the fall, guess what happened to men? <laughs> we fell. We we were deceived by a serpent. We did eat of the fruit. We did get kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and we did turn the world into a, a gaping shithole. So, like, I don't understand, like, why through someone else's will could you be corrupted? Like, that's literally in the Bible, dog. <laughs> you know. So, like, uh, your elves are still the prettiest boys because a lot of them, you know, it's it's like I've always that's something that we used to debate in my religion is like what would happen if Eve came back to Adam with the half-eaten apple and offered it to him. He's like, "Damn, Eve, you done fucked up. Like, we got to go approach Yahweh and and see what he thinks about this because I ain't I look I ain't eating this apple like." <laughs> You know, what if there was, like, because, like, that's what happened to elves. Some of them fell, some of them didn't. Right. Uh, we weren't so lucky in the Garden of Eden. We had a sample case of one, and, and <laughs> they all fell. Right. But, like, yeah, I never understood, like, why he was so conflicted about that. Um, but I haven't delved into a lot of his uh, his letters and writings either. Maybe there was... Uh, because I do sometimes I wonder if, like, ever, anyone ever approached him late in his life and is like, yo, have you ever thought about the kind of hateful stereotypes that you're putting on some of these people of being totally <laughs> irredeemable and you know some of the cla- the attributes that you've given them and things like that like ah and cuz I think that Tolkien is a pretty thoughtful person and those right. if if you know he read modern critiques of his uh works he'd probably agree with them you know and and probably want to move away to that and like you know when we're talking about the 60s and 70s probably those critiques were were at at hand at least like you know prototypes of them yeah, I mean, he was very big on answering letters. He actually, the reason he never finished mm-hmm. the Silmarillion in part was that he was always responding to every single letter that came in until he got like way too big and then he had a publicist. But um, it's just, I agree with you, he would have taken that in. And I know he had correspondence with priests and things like that. And I don't mm-hmm. know if maybe he just was bothered by that irredeemable thing, which is why yeah. he was sort of like, well, I don't want to touch my precious elves, you know, I don't want to right, uh, right, corrupt right. them. So I don't know. I I mean, I think that's just one of his quirks here is that he didn't know what to do with orcs. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, they were made by Morgoth, as we just saw, and, and as the show has adopted, at least as its canon uh, creation story. And so theoretically, they're redeemable, but... That's because everyone, including Morgoth, is theoretically redeemable in Tolkien's world, like we talked about before. But like you were saying, it's exceedingly unlikely that they're ever going to try to do that. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's a, you know, you traumatize and torture people enough, like, uh, you, you have similar kind of things. It's like, well, it's, yeah, they could, they could get over that, but like, you know, be humans being what they are, would they ever? I do think that, like, that's another thing that he, if Tolkien, I don't know, because the other thing is, like, did did he like the black and white morality? Because I do think a weakness is that there isn't a single half-orc or even full-orc that was, like, sickened by the things that are happening right. and, like, you know, um, I don't think they'd ever, like, join the elves because they're just too much in light. But, like, you know, have see some kinship with the dwarves and be like, you know what, I like living underground, I like fashioning things. 
it, it would be it would be interesting to have a, an orc redeem try to redeem themselves somewhere in, in the 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 canon you know yeah uh totally and and one thing is it's hard to take Adar seriously when he's saying you know we just want a place to live you guys are just hunting us down when like they spent the first few episodes just killing people for no reason except that they wanted them to leave they didn't ask them to leave nicely they didn't say hey we're gonna go settle over here leave us alone this is true they they're literally just indiscriminately killing people and then saying why are you indiscriminately killing us <laughs> but that would be a because like that's kind of ahistorical because like the orcas i understand have been spent centuries if not millennia being relentlessly hounded by the elves to all ends of the earth like they literally cannot escape this these these elves on this vengeance quest so for them to kind of come and be like, well, we're going to carve out a homeland here, and we're going to blot out the sun with this here volcano. It's like, I, yeah, like especially yeah. when you're talking about medieval type of thinking and politics, like might makes right. Uh, I could forgive a people for being like, fucking hell, if we can't stay in the fur, far-flung frozen north at peace, then I guess we're going to come south, and we're going to blot out the sun with this volcano and fuck anybody who doesn't like it. Because no one asked us for our opinion before all this stuff started. <laughs> you know, I... I don't know how canon, how literary canon, the hunting down to the ends of the earth that Galadriel's doing is, because we don't really have a lot about her adventures prior to being in Lothlorien, but, right. you know, I think that the show is just telling us this story, and I don't know how close that is to Tolkien's intention, but you're right. If that's true, what's happening, if Galadriel's literally just hunting people down just because of their race... That is problematic. To the extent that other el- yeah, to the extent that like all other elves kind of like, God, this is fucked, man. Yeah. You shouldn't uh yeah. you know. Uh I-, I could see the the orcs being like, Well, you know, no one yeah, yeah, we, we don't we don't we are not even given a chance here. You know, it's funny, there was a callback actually to uh a part of the Silmarillion when Adar and Galadriel were talking, because when when Adar says it seems like Morgoth already has his successor what Galadriel had just said was, you know, I'm going to hunt down every single orc and then you're going to watch them all be in misery. And that is such mm-hmm. a good callback. Somebody pointed this out online somewhere where Turin, the his father, Hurin, because, you know, the story of mm-hmm. the children of Hurin. Uh, if mm-hmm. if listeners, if you don't know this, this is uh, if Tolkien. That's and the guy who can shape shift. No, no, that? no, no, no. Um, this is Hurin is one of like the heroes of men and he got captured by Morgoth and Morgoth sets a curse on his family and says, I'm going to have you sit right here until all of your family members are dead. And they all were miserable their entire lives. They are cursed in life and in death. And Uh this story is in the Silmarillion. It's called of Turin Turambar. It's also Mm -hmm. a standalone book called the children of Hurin. Uh, Christopher Lee actually narrates the audio book. I recommend that. Um, but it's basically George R. R. Martin meets J.R. Tolkien. It's uh, it's very dark. There is murder, yeah, incest. Yeah, it's it's horrendous, and it's a great story. But it's it's just super dark. He's just a tragic mm-hmm. hero, and um, it sounds a lot like what Morgoth said to Hurin of "I'm going to make all of your kin die miserably, and while well, you watch, and then I'm gonna kill you." That's basically what Galadriel said to Adar. I mean. 
And it, I thought the Adar had a sick response. Like that was, I think, an example of really good writing, where he's like, "Wow, looks like I'm not the only elf who's been twisted into a, right a, a, a darkened shape." And <laughs> uh, Gio, and, and maybe your search for the ultimate evil should have ended in the mirror, because um, that's <laughs> kind of echoing what her own people have said to her, right? Um, yeah, and like I, I thought that was shocking for Galadriel too, because like. I think Adar, at the bare minimum, I said this on our podcast, is sympathetic. You know, he is, like, at worst, um, Magneto from the X-Men. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, he's got the wrong idea, and he's going about things in a particularly cruel and vicious. But, my God, look where he came from. Right. He at least can understand. And, you know, I think that's um, a character flaw of the elves, that it seems like, canonically, they could not accept their brothers and sisters who had been through this horrendous experience. They couldn't help them back and, like, you know, have some kind of convalescent wing where, you know, maybe they'll never fully be whole, but, like, will do their best. It's like, oh, you guys are you guys are tainted by darkness. Get get out of here. Right. Um, and you think, like, the world would have been a better place if those elves had been generous, you know, had more generous spirits. Um, yeah. I mean, the whole first age is filled with elvish horrors basically i mean mm-hmm. and again you understand why they come from where they come from too right but i mean tolkien had a lot of levels of gray i mean i think that when people get into the whole tolkien is black and white in his morality they've only read or seen the lord of the rings whereas i think right. that in the first stage you see a ton of levels of gray where you have the sons of feanor where some of them are pretty brutal and some of them are just like pretty evil straightforward but you have people like Maglor and Madros, Madros, who actually grapple with, well, we made this oath to, fu- to fulfill, to get all these Silmarils through whatever horrible things we have to do. But neither of us really want to do it anymore. We just feel bound to it, and we don't think we can seek <laughs> right. forgiveness. And that's a, that's a really good conflict that mm-hmm. I think that Galadriel is going to have to grapple with a similar version of is... Well, I vow to hunt down Sauron, but am I doing more evil than good on the way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very human thing too. The you know getting stuck in a pattern that's unhealthy and like, why am I even doing this anymore? Mm-hmm. You know, why am I trying to stick it to this person or stick it? Why, why don't I just go ahead and live my own life? You know, <laughs> let this stuff go. Yeah, that's that's. I think that resonates. Yeah. All right, so Aaron, why don't we chat quickly about Mount Doom? And then we can move on to David's audio diary. That'll be fun. But I have a few details about Mount Doom. Uh, there's a couple other names for it. There's Orodrin, which is Sindarin for Fiery Mountain. There is Amon Amarth, which is Sindarin for Mountain of Fate. You pointed out, I remember, in your podcast that Udun is hell in Sindarin. Yeah. So we're seeing a lot more Cinderin now. I've I've been troubled by the dominance of Quenya in this show because it just is kind of ahistorical, but um right. and I and I don't really see a reason to do it because they can use both. But uh Right. I'm glad that they have used Cinderin for certain things where where it's appropriate. Yeah. So quickly about the creation, there's a throwaway line in Tolkien's last writings in The People of Middle-Earth, which is um, part of the history of Middle-Earth. It's uh, volume 12, I believe. And it basically says that Mount Doom was created in the corruption of Melkor, Mount Morgoth, when Morgoth is going to each iteration that the Valar create of the world, and he's just marring it, and he's just creating unpleasant areas, and he's corrupting it. 
So that's pretty much where it started. And Sauron noticed it and saw, hmm, this is pretty hot. I think I could use this for my own good. And that's why he selects Mordor for his uh, fortress area. It seems like the way they're going with this story is going to impress, compress rather, almost all the events of the Second Age into the very last years of the Second Age. Yes. Which I know I saw some people, you know, were having kind of a a fit about. But I don't know because, like, I don't know what a story, you know, looking at Foundation, looking at what they're doing a Hot D where people, like, lose their minds over a 10-year jump. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it looks like. It's like, we are now going to jump forward 1,500 years, and everyone <laughs> that you've known so far, except for a couple of elves, are going to be dead. Like, I really don't know if that works, even though that's literally what happens. Um, yeah. But it seems like, yeah, all this stuff like where, you know, it seems like everything felt flew a little bit more naturally is going to be very compressed into these, these last few, few years. Right. Well, I think that you're right. The only way I could have seen them do it is if they just did the elf stuff in the first part, because the Numenorians don't come into play until later in the Second Age, really, as far as Sauron goes. Hmm. So do like all do an all elf first season, yeah. To kind of set the stage, and then you bring in the other races, right? To, that way, to, you don't yeah. lose any characters. You just have new characters added. But clearly, they want to get, they want to hit people's member berries. Like, you remember the hobbits, right? Well, here's the proto hobbits. And you remember the writers of Rohan and, and the Gondorians. You like those guys. Well, here's a blend of both of their armors. And yeah, I, I can see why it would be risky to just, because also the elves are, the elves are the worst. Um, <laughs> I don't know. You, you, you might violently disagree with me, but like, I think the elves are only interesting in, uh, opposition or conjunction with the other races, or the other children of Iluvatar. I mean, I think that the first stage shows how elves can be really interesting because they're basically all of the characters. I'll say this. I read True. the Silmarillion again. But that's when elves recently. were interesting and they could do things like rebel against God and have uh, <laughs> internal start and do kinslaying. Yeah, that yeah. shit goes away to second age on. They just become the perfect little children that Tolkien wanted them to be. Well, And they're just exasperated yeah. at the you know, impetuousness of men and the, you know, uh, the industriousness and, and crotchetiness of the dwarves. And yeah. 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 I mean, I see what you're saying. Um, the first age elves are a lot more full spectrum humanity. Like you, they're more recognizably like they have jealousies and fears and hatreds and enmities and loves. And they just seem like a lot, lot more fate. Well, maybe that's the plot. They're a lot more faded and just kind of stable and, all that elf, all that elf energy and juice has dissipated, so they're not as uh, they're not as passionate and impetuous. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, well, at the end of the first stage, the Noldor were pardoned and allowed to come back, and most of them did. It's pretty much just Galadriel and Gilgalad, uh, Elrond, a few of them who really, which are the elves around. that are sort of that self selected themselves to kind of like have that kind of like I kind of want to rule, right? You know, right? So I yeah. do think that there's a little bit of that. Uh, lust for power still within all these elves that you see. I mean, Elrond was born in Middle Earth. It's not like he left and wouldn't come back, right? But right. yeah, I mean, I I do think that you're right that they're not doing a good job humanizing them in the show, at least. Hmm. Uh, I mean, the Elrond obsession because Elrond seems like he is the 
the the coolest of the elves, I would say. And that's largely because he's got a friend, Durin. Like, if he's just hang, hanging out with Celebrimbor and uh, Gilgalad all day, he probably would be an insufferable prick, too. But and he's, he's, he's half rolling man. around in Durin, and he's cool. And he's half-man. And part Maya, too. Mmm. He's got yeah. some, some superpowers. Got all the good. He's got the best stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I have one more thing to just say about this, which is that Everything that you see about Mount Doom right now is pretty much fan fiction, and that's fine. I really enjoyed it. It was super fun. It was super visually stimulating. Um, It is suggested in The Lord of the Rings that Sauron sort of had a bond with the mountain where when he's destroyed in the end by Frodo, or by Gollum, I guess, the mountain erupts. It's, It's sort of tied to his will, so it is a little bit of a diversion, but... I do like what they're doing with it so far. So let's just enjoy it for now. I do too. Like it might be fan fiction, but the, cause I was like, why, how is a dar going to wear wage war against the sun? Like this <laughs> seems like, like, like bond villain or almost Austin powers villain. Like, yeah, for $1 billion, I will blot out the sun. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, that's like, you know, you always see mountain doom and it's always choked the volcanic ash and the orc can like move around freely because of that. It's like, that's actually kind of really clever. Um, yeah, I, I I liked it that that they're turning into a biome for the orcs and and like adapted for their unique way of living. Um, gosh, oh, I just had a thought. Do you think that pouch is going to offer the magical protection? Or I, so like there's 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 different ways the next episode can enter. If the next episode starts and uh, Galadriel and Halbrand and uh, Arendir and everybody's walking around like uh, first responders after 9-11 just kind of coated with a thin layer of ash, that's the worst timeline for me. Um, Second one would be as Galadriel somehow has like some kind of crystal that she's used to channel the light of Elendir or whatever, and there's just just some magical bubble that's protected them. Like, okay, that's fine. You can do that. What if Halbrin's pouch offers some kind of like because he's a magical Southern king uh, that would offer some kind of protection um, because they, they, clearly this is an important artifact and it's driving me crazy that no one like everyone seems to recognize its importance except for us the fucking audience um, and maybe that would be a reason that they'd keep it secret um, that it's 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 got some kind of power to resist the, and then that would also kind of tie into if Halbrand is Sauron, that ties into his connection to the volcano. Um, mm. But I'm in. I don't know. Well, I think that I'm hearing ambulances right now because I think your first responder theory is probably the most likely. To be honest, <laughs> yeah, the sack theory is going to not not uh, not proven uh, prove to go anywhere. Mm. I don't think so. All right, so why don't we take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to have David's thoughts on uh, the episode all the way from Rohan, and then Marilyn Pukila's interview, The Last of It. Writing in on Shadowfax from Rohan is David with his thoughts on this episode. 
Hi, John. Well, I'm still on my long journey, uh, but I think I can finally see home from across the next ridge line. And to be honest, I'm anxious to be getting back to be able to attend home and hearth. It's been a long day of travel, uh, but I did get to watch the episode the other day, and I've just got a a few brief thoughts I wanted to send in uh, with this audio diary. Um, I've got just a couple of takes, and I don't think I'm going to get into too much specifics about the episode. Uh, I don't want to get down into a into the mud of breaking apart this episode because I, for one, found this to be, I think, my least favorite episode of the season so far. Really, this episode for me relied too much on basic action adventure tropes that we, you know, seen plenty of in the past. And those tropes um, and and basic setups really kept me removed from the emotional impact of what I think the show was trying to do. I mean, really, uh, so many unsophisticated story-setting plot devices like Bronwyn saving Arendir at the last moment or the cavalry charge arriving in the nick of time, even the bait-and-switch with Waldrick, like... I saw that a mile coming, and uh, it just didn't interest me. And and actually, I was a little bit bored during a lot of what was going on. Um, Some of the stuff was just even downright unbelievable. Like, why was Halbrand able to get in front of uh, Adar, even though the horses were running full speed away from the village? Uh, it, It didn't make sense to me. And I don't wonder, like, what also got cut from this? Like... Why was the stable sweep standing next to the Queen Regent during the battle and, and the cavalry charge? Like, what scenes were cut from the show that might have set that up in a better way? So I've not been able to check in with too many other sources, but it seems that a lot of there's a lot of mixed reaction by folks to this episode. So folks who didn't enjoy last week's episodes really enjoyed this week's episodes and vice versa. So I think these kinds of diverging opinions about the episodes are a strong indication that the show isn't doing as well as we might have hoped overall for this season. So for me, so far, the show is really coming in around a B or B minus, and I'm really hoping that they can bring the last two episodes in for a good landing so that they can set us up for, for season two. Um, All that said, I do want to point out that even though this episode was based on a lot of action and adventure tropes that I think were overly simplistic and personally just, I found boring. I still think that the show is um, weaving a strong fabric of lore and really great callbacks to the Jackson films and original writings. Um, I think there are some the conversations with uh, Galadriel that were really pulling in some great deep material. There's other things like um, I think the uh, relationship between Arondir and Bronwyn, like he's a gardener and she's a healer. Those are both strong themes that we can find in Tolkien's Legendarium. So they're pulling in a lot of material, even though the show, this episode was a, a lot of this action stuff underneath it. There's a, a, a real strong layer of, of lore and, and pulling together wider sources from, from the writings and other films. Um, so anyway, um, 
I'm appreciating that aspect of, of the show, and um, I'm hoping to see what we're going to get for 7 and 8. Um, thanks again for holding everything together. Um, episodes are, are sounding great, and I'm looking forward to um, catching up with you soon for the season finality. Okay, I'll uh, talk to you soon. David, we are missing you here on the Lorecast, but we're so grateful that we've had so many great guests uh, to join us in your absence. And next, we're going to have the last bit of my interview with Tolkien scholar Marilyn Pukila. And in this part of the interview, we talked about some more general aspects of Tolkien, the Second Age, and how they're doing on the show. We had been emailing back and forth uh, about what we were going to talk about on this episode, because you and I could probably talk for six hours about random bits of Tolkien lore. If you keep us going, we'll be here forever. So here's the first thing that we agreed on, which is what is the core of the Second Age? What kind of themes was Tolkien going for? Uh, What kind of truth was he looking to give to us? Because we talked in our preview podcast about how Tolkien saw fiction, he saw mythology as a chance to impart a truth, a chance to seek the truth in the universe. And so what is that core that he's going for in this work? And you had a couple ideas for us. Yes, well, from the famous letter 131, um, for me, the overarching core is what he called fall, mortality, and the machine. By which he means every... um, every species, if you will, in Middle-earth experiences some kind of fall. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some more obvious than others. This, of course, ties back in with his own Catholicism. He firmly believed we live in a fallen world, that Eden was real, that Satan was real, and therefore, you know, Christ was able to redeem human beings, but they still fall into sin, so on and so on. Um, So, you know, Melchor is the most obvious example, but the elves fall we see in the Selmarillion as being, you know, the creation of the Selmarils, the defying of the Valar and going to try and get them back. But in the Second Age, it's a lot more subtle. These are, particularly for the Noldor, these are the ones who survived the First Age and have not gone back to Valinor for whatever reason. Um, but they are trying to preserve Middle-earth as a sort of an echo of Valinor which is to go against the natural order of things. And in Tolkien's world, that's usually a very bad idea. Mm-hmm. And this now, is what's going to lead them, and particularly Celebrimbor, into the temptation of making rings of healing and preservation. Hmm. Now, healing so, isn't necessarily a fall, but you know, preservation against what is the natural evolution of things. I have a lovely quote from Unfinished Tales, if I can oh, read sure. it. Oh, sure. Yes, yes, please. Um, this is Galadriel and Celebrimbor talking, and actually this is another interest I'm going to excurse for a minute. To back to the, to the series, we've still been seeing Celeborn. There have been implications that Celebrimbor was sweet on Galadriel, but she loved Celeborn, and so they have still this closeness. So this is in the context of this conversation where Galadriel says, I am grieved in Middle-earth, for leaves fall and flowers fade that I have loved so that the land of my dwelling is filled with regret that no spring can ever redress. And Celebrimbor responds, 
how otherwise can it be for the Eldar if they cling to Middle-earth? Hmm. And so, clinging is usually associated with fall. Clinging, possessiveness, dangers of possessiveness was one of the nine themes that I taught. And you see that throughout. So it's kind of hard to see this as a fall because you say, well, what's wrong with healing? What's wrong with preservation? You know, but the subtext of making it as beautiful as Valinor, which is what Anatar offers to uh, the elves and eventually to Kalabrimbor. There you see the pride coming in, because nothing is as beautiful as Valinor. You're setting yourself up to be the equivalent of, you know, the deities, the holy ones. Right, and and you have you you have a lot of questions coming in uh, in our into our podcast about, you know, if Valinor is this great place and the elves are welcome there, why won't they just go back? And I think that that's a loaded question, because I think that there's a lot of mixed feelings of the elves in Middle-earth, depending on if they're Avari, if they never wanted to go at all, or if they're the Noldor who left for a reason and they never really accomplished that reason. Um, What's your feeling on that? Well, I think for some of the Noldor, they actually fell in love with Middle-earth. They do have a strong feeling for wanting to be there. For the Avari, I'm not sure. It may be that for the majority of the Avari, they're just going to fade and never actually see Vaninor because mm. they didn't accept the first invitation. That's just a guess. Um, the Sindar, of course, are very much involved with Middle-earth because that's all they've ever known as well. But because they had Melian and Thingol and received some of the benefit of somebody who had seen the light of the two trees, um, they are presented as being somewhat deeper in that sense. And according to the Lord of the Rings, at the end, Legolas is allowed to return to Valinor. But he didn't want it until he had heard the sea. Mm. Which Ymir Gladwell tells him, beware the sound of the sea, the sight of the sea, because once you hear that, the sea longing is going to be uh, awoken within you. And the impression is that all elves have this sea longing. And for Mm. many of them, it sleeps until they see the sea. But for the Noldor, the Noldor are a special case because they went to Valinor and then they left. Right. And so a lot of them return because they've suffered a lot. They're ready to go back. For the great ones who stay, uh, I think it's a mixed answer. Um, Certainly with Galadriel, it's implied that she's proud. And there's so many different versions of Galadriel for Tolkien that to say any one thing is to contradict three others. So you kind of have to pick and choose your own story for her. Right. But it seems pretty clear that she wanted to, she wanted to rule a people. She wanted to have the same kind of power and authority that she saw in her brothers, her father, other, you know, male Noldor, if you will. I think Gilgalad stays because he feels a responsibility. There's so many other Noldor that are staying and somebody's got to, you know, sort of be in, not be in charge necessarily, although they certainly seem to be making this one in charge. As an aside, that's one of the aspects that I'm still the most uncomfortable with in this series. I really don't see why this particular Gilgalad is somebody for whom the Harpers will sadly sing. But he's got yeah. another four seasons to go, so I'm looking for a big character out there. Anyway, Absolutely. I think he stays out of responsibility. Um and maybe Celebrimbor stays out of love for Gladriel. Who knows? But she has this mix of 
she has great abilities. She wants to use them. She does love what she has found there. She wants to preserve it. Um, And she's proud because depending upon which version of her story you listen to, um, you know, she was banned and then she was said, it's okay, you can go back. And she says, well, why would I want to? There's a version that says she was never banned, but she left anyway. And so it was kind of uncertain what her future would be. And there's this line of her saying, why should I go back to and be confined into one small island, Tol Ersea, when once I lived freely in Valinor, here, at least, I have control of a realm. And, and, you know, I'm my own master, if you will. Pick your favorite answer, right? Right. So, so actually, something I wanted to ask you about before we got to the end of this, and I think this is a good spot, is how do you feel about this whole Gilgalad sending Galadriel out to Valinor, uh, out, to, out to the Undying Lands, rather? I didn't like it at all. The only way I can make peace with it is I think he saw that, she, well, it's fairly obvious to anybody, I think, that she is deeply wounded. She's suffering from PTSD. She's suffering from survivor guilt. I haven't heard too many people talk about that, but that seems Mm. pretty self-evident to me. And the constant searching for Sauron appears to have become an obsession. Now, that's a loaded word. Um, You know, would they be saying the same thing if this were a male elf instead of a female elf? I don't know. But I could frame it in such a way that he was concerned for her health and well-being and believe that she could find healing in Valinor. Now, as most people will be able to tell you, you can't be healed unless you want it, and you're looking for it. I don't get a sense so far from this Galadriel that she's seeking healing. She's seeking revenge. And some way to assuage her own guilt. So, what I really didn't like, though, even if that's true, what I really didn't like was him conveying the Gilgalad conveying the impression that Sauron was vanished, that all was safe now. It was okay for Galadriel to go home. And then practically in the next scene, we see him telling Elrond, actually, no, I know there's something going on. And mm-hmm. I want you to go work with Celebrimbor because he may have an answer to this problem. I, I don't like duplicity. I don't like, I want my leaders to speak the truth in love. I'm, somebody pointed out to me that you know, was actually not a characteristic of leaders, but this is a fantasy. Why can't we have an example of a shining elf who was grieved because he spoke the truth, because he was always honest and caring for his people? Uh, so, right. still very mixed. I'm, I'm looking forward to his arc. Yeah, you know, as as you said, the duplicity feels weird. It doesn't feel like a Tolkien elf, at least in the Second Age. I mean, you could see somebody like Feanor getting getting into some mischief like that. Uh, but I, I think that by the Second Age, we see in Tolkien's writings that the elves have mostly sorted that kind of nonsense out of the people in Middle-earth. Um, but the, I guess the biggest thing that bothered me about it was it seemed like they were offering up the Undying Lands as a prize that the elves have the authority to give. And I Which think that that is totally to- right. And, and it also just kind of doesn't make sense. Like, especially it, it's a little bothersome because these are monarchies and, and who has authority over, over who can go to Valinor. Um, I keep saying Valinor because the show says Valinor, even though you and I both know that it's really not 
Valinor itself. It's just the general Undying Lands, Tol Arisea. Uh, but the show has simplified a few things, and that's okay because we need to get this across to people who haven't read 12 books. Right, and that's how I can kind of make my peace with it. Yeah, but a, a very key detail of that whole scene, which is beautiful, mm-hmm. let us admit, gorgeous, heartbreaking. The music is wonderful. The visuals, the the rain curtain, all of that sort of thing. What is the source of light? Because <laughs> the trees are dead. Right. It was completely dark. They were sailing after nightfall. Did, did they ask the sun to hold up a minute because they knew a boat was coming and they wanted to have a glorious light shining to greet them? That to me that was kind of sloppy well that and because they'd I, so already I, I think, said it was dark they'd already showed us the completely darkened toilet Rasea and and also wasted which by the way was not also not according to lore it wasn't wasted it was just dark and it was the two trees that were killed he didn't you know burn up the whole rest of, of toilet Rasea. i think that what they were trying to do there was just take that quote from the lord of the rings where frodo is is reaching the undying lands and just they said you know that's a really pretty quote Let's bring that to life. Right. Um, and I, I know that I agree with you. The the light thing is a little sloppy. Also, I, I think that that's a little anachronistic, too, because that's not the level of separation that I picture between uh, Middle Earth and the Undying Lands in at the time of the Second Age. Right. Uh, but but I guess we can say, let's just give them this. <laughs> let's just give them this one. It's OK. Right. It was excellent TV. It was beautiful. Um, and we'll move on. But I think it's fun now that we have you on the show to to just uh, you and I can geek out about some of these lore details that are a little off. I'll tell you what it was. It was remarkably Arthurian. Hmm. The whole setup, you know, warriors who had succeeded and they were going on the the uh, disrobing of their armor and their weapons and the setting of it aside. Very hieratic, very, very ritual in practice. And of course, everybody's saying, so what happens to all the girls who are taking off the armor? <laughs> well, they just take the next boat back. Um, <laughs> presumably. I mean, see, I had from the um, trailers, I had thought that the boat was going to try to get into Valinor and the sea monster was going to prevent it. And right. Galadriel was going to survive, but everyone else was going to die. So in many ways, I like what they did better because, you know, they certainly didn't deserve to die. Under, underlying this this context of all the things we're talking about here is the absence of something which I don't know if they are going to try and bring into the story, and that's Osanwe Kenta. Go on. Osanwe Kenta is Tolkien's concept of the ability to speak mind to mind. It's mm-hmm. most strong in the elves, but some humans also have the capacity. Um, you can tell if somebody else is blocking your reception as it were you can tell if someone's blocking themselves from you and you can block yourself from someone else nobody can force anybody else to read anything or say anything except by severe force of will so galadriel would have known if osanwe kenta exists in this iteration this adaptation she would have known either that Gilgalad was lying or he was blocking her either way it's highly suspicious. Hmm. Okay, so you've got other themes though within this first theme. And so you've talked about fall. So let's hear about the next one. Well, the next one is mortality. And that's pretty straightforward. And it's kind of the core of the challenge for the Nenorians that 
in their origin, their king was brother to an elf, and their king chose mortality, and Elvon chose to remain an elf. Now, the elves are not immortal, of course. They can be killed. They can die of sorrow. But they are what you might call serially longevo, meaning they live for a very long time. And if they should be, if their souls, their uh, fea should be separated from the hro, their bodies, they can go to a place for time for healing, and then they can actually come back in their bodies again. So, in that sense, they appear to to humanize to be immortal. And so the Numenorians eventually over time grow envious of that. They haven't really specified yet so far, correct me if I'm wrong, about why the Numenorians hate elves so much, am I right? Yes, I think that they're presenting this as a mystery for those watching at home okay. uh, who, who haven't dug into this stuff. I mean, we're, we've been pretty open about it on our podcast. We're not hiding the ball on that. But um, I well, I mean, they've done a little bit of uh, sort of anti-immigrant elf uh, things right. in the last episode. That was definitely um, the, the tone of it, wasn't it? Right, right. Our far is known as being a populist and uh, just trying to trying to stir things away. Mm-hmm. And as I said before, the elves are grieved by the mortality of the world around them. Mm-hmm. So it comes down to any the question any sentient being has to answer. How do you live with the knowledge that you're going to die? Mm-hmm. And for humans, that's a much more present question. Um, and the little touches that they've done, um, the fact that when Elendil first speaks Quenya to Galadriel, I don't think we know it at this point, but we learn soon after that his wife has recently died. Mm. And they're having this conversation right next to a shrine of Nienna, mm. who is the Valar of mourning and grieving and contemplation. And right next to her is a statue of Ishtar, who is a Babylonian goddess of descent and return. So she also has to do with death and loss and mourning and grief. Um, so it, wow. I mean, I was practically jumping up and down when I saw all that come together in one piece. They have so much that they can't reference directly, but they are totally willing to put that in the background for people who know what, what it is. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I, maybe I looked away or something. Maybe I had some popcorn, but I didn't see that, that shrine to Nienna. Well, I heard a, uh, a talk by um, I'm not going to get his name right. Avery can't remember his last name. One of the one of the main designers, and so at some point during that, he said that all a whole bunch of the Valar were being referenced throughout Numenor, and there were all these little shrines and things, and that's what kind of ticked me off. So I started looking <laughs> everywhere I could. So far, I've seen Ulmo and Nianna and uh, Kost Uinen. I think a lot of people have picked up Uinen, who's there in the courtyard of what has now become a prison somewhere. Mm. I've read that it, at some point it was actually a seminary. And mm. so they were trying to think, you know, why would Numenorians ever built prisons? They didn't need prisons for, you know, much of their early time. Um, so maybe these were, you know, monkish cells of some sort. And then when they changed in their habits and they suddenly did need to have cells, um, they said, well, here's some cells. Let's just throw some bars in and use them. But Uinen was still there because of the, um, the religious, if you will, origins. You know, so you, that theme of mortality, fairly, fairly obvious, fairly straightforward. The third part of that is the machine. And this is where magic comes in. 
because when a lot of people hear machine, they instantly think of Tolkien's well-known distress around the loss of the countryside and the introduction of automobiles and, you know, the machinery, literally machinery. But what he meant by this is something which can be imposed upon the natural order of things Hmm. for sometimes good purposes and sometimes bad purposes. In fact, it reminds me just a tiny titch of Arthur C. Clarke's quote, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Hmm. That's the sort of quote unquote magic that the elves have because for them it's craft. They are so deeply uh, instilled in nature they are so excellent in their craft because they have thousands of years to develop it that they can artlessly, artfully, however you want to describe it, they can present things, they can do things that to humans look like magic. Now, as long as they're doing that within um, the natural order of things, for lack of a better way of putting it, they are not imposing their wills on stuff. That's why the elven rings become the other kind of machine, the other kind of magic, which is Goethe. See, our, the magical traditions come to us from the Hermetic tradition from Egypt, and they became part of medieval magic throughout Europe. So it's based on the four elements of earth, air, fire, and water. And if you'll permit me a brief discursus here, please. You got Manoe for air, you got Aule for earth, you got Ulmo for water. So where's fire? I think fire was Melko. Mm. And of course, still is Melko after his fall, but initially intended to be in the harmonious relationship with the other three. What's interesting about this, if you think about it, air, water, and earth are all actual substances. They're made of, you know, atoms and so on and so forth. Right. Fire is a chemical process. And mm. it is vulnerable because it relies upon the presence of fuel and air in the right proportions to survive. Just for those who, who aren't as steeped in this as us, Milko, who, who you've referred to, that's also Morgoth. Uh, that's that's a, a, a synonym. That's that's a name that, that uh, Feanor gave to uh, this Vala later, um, af- after all this nonsense happened with the Silmarils. <laughs> uh, but so what you're saying is basically Morgoth is almost a parasite on what's happening. Morgoth cannot exist. Morgoth has no power without relying on the power of others. That's what he's become. Who knows what he would have been otherwise? Because remember, there's this ambiguity. We have Morgoth, if you like, evil fire, and we have the flame imperishable, Mm -hmm. which comes from Iluvatar. And Gandalf is the servant of the secret fire. And he wields the ring of fire. So, fire, as I say, very much like magic, it depends upon your intentions. Right. And you even had uh, the the stranger was saying ure mana. Right. Uh, what what do you think he was saying there? Because I've had some internal debate over well, what was there an accent on uh, no, was uh, there, mana? Wasn't there that, an accent? Yes. I'm freely admitting this is my confirmation bias speaking here. I think he was saying blessed fire. I, I do too. I think he was saying, in effect, I am a serv- servant of the secret fire. 
But that I doesn't that mean he was Gandalf. I know, I know. Because it, he all could the be Astari another Astari. were servants yeah. of the secret fire. They were all <laughs> coming on behalf of uh, Iluvatar via the Valar. So I, I don't see any contradiction in that. Um, but as I say, I, I, I'm saying that's the case because I want it to be the case. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's that's what Tolkien would want us to do, right? I mean, he, he'd want us to be sub-creators here and... Uh, uh, it'd be creating myths of our own. So let's pretend, even if the show tells us not, that it was a blue wizard the whole time. <laughs> so in medieval magic, you've got these four elements. They're supposed to be in balance. Um, and they were studying nature through these magical principles, in effect. So you have alchemy, in which they were trying to turn one earth substance into another, trying to turn lead into gold. This eventually becomes chemistry, because you're still learning basic principles and what happens when you put a beaker of water over, you know, a flame? It gets hot, it boils, it makes steam, all those other things. Astrology becomes astronomy. You're studying the stars because throughout all the different cultures, there is a belief that they have an effect on us. They can observe the effects of the moon upon the tides, so by extension. So the, the magic becomes the science by virtue of the ability of the person who is using the information. So... In the medieval mind, Goetia re- uh, revolved around the summoning of spirits to impose greater strength than your own on other people or things. Very much frowned upon, of course, within the Christian tradition, because I'm thinking Christian medieval Europe, because that's basically my realm of knowledge. I really don't know how these things all work out within um, you know, Jewish or Arabic traditions. I should definitely study that sometime. It'd be very interesting. And you had some letters that you came about Tolkien's own statements concerning magic. And what's interesting is if you look at the letters before Lord of the Rings and after, there's some slight variations there. But he himself admits that he uses magic inconsistently. Um, But that elvish magic is magia, art or craft, which is developed far beyond that of mortals with limited lifespans. And does not dominate, but rather heals. The enemy does goetia unnatural interference with or domination of others with good or bad intent. Necromancy is also associated with Goetia, the summoning of dead spirits or the re-inhabiting of dead bodies. And of course, in The Hobbit, we first hear of Sauron being named as the necromancer, although Tolkien didn't know he was Sauron when he called him the necromancer, but that's beside the point. So trying to speed things up, or trying to slow them down can be viewed as goetia and therefore evil. But a lot depends upon the intention. And elves never intend for their uh, what they do. They can create illusions, but they know that they're illusions in the same way that we can paint a painting and know it's a painting, but right. still enjoy the effect. Mortals can see elvish illusion and not realize that it's not reality. And so that's another example of how their skill takes them that much further along. And I think that that matters for the Numenorians as well. I mean, when I think that something that gets lost is when Galadriel is saying, you know, you owe everything to us. The Numenorians, yes, they did fight that war with Morgoth and that they were rewarded with the island of Numenor, but it's not like they magically got superpowers then. They didn't magically become supermen then. Right. Um, they, they got that because the elves were willing to share their magic with uh, the the Edine. And so I think that Galadriel's not totally wrong where she's saying, you know, you you guys got a lot of where you are right now 
because you were hanging out with us. Right. Yes, they do have that touch of Elvish ancestry, which is what still conveys to them both foresight and healing ability. So Tolkien, I believe he specifically linked Aragorn's healing abilities to the fact that he was a descendant of Luthien. He did. I, 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 that was one of the quotes I brought, but that's pretty much the gist of it, is that Tolkien's saying this isn't necessarily something where you can go learn how to heal in, in a magic way. This is something that uh, is definitely inherited. Yes, innate, not learned, precisely. So we see them using magic in different ways throughout the series, um, some more faithfully than others, shall we say. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but it's interesting to see how they're interpreting it. So if we were going to summarize Tolkien's magic system for people who have gotten lost with us on the on the train of various different languages, I, I guess I, I would put it as, first of all, it's something that's innate, as you said, and not learned. So this is something that is generally inherited based on the type of being you are, based on where you spent time. Did you see the trees? Did you, you know, et cetera. This is not something that you can pick up a spell book and learn. Um, and then also intent is at the center of magic whether Absolutely. you are uh doing so to create beauty and to aid things or if you are trying to dominate others um and you know i i was going to present a theme before but we don't have to go too deep into it which is the supremely bad motive for this tale as since it is especially about it is the domination of other free wills and so that's where you're looking at that negative type of magic. So you have different magic. It's not necessarily good or bad, but the way it's used is what makes it good or bad. Yes, absolutely. And right in the middle there, that liminal space, which I adore, the word liminal meaning a space between two things. So dusk and dawn or liminal times. The place between high tide and low tide is a liminal space. Mm -hmm. Fog is liminal because it's both air and water. So the liminal space that I'm talking about they've called the Harfoots. <laughs> because, and this is true both for their, we assume, eventual descendants, the Hobbits. At the very beginning, when we first read about the Hobbit, Tolkien says that they had no magic except the very ordinary kind, which allows them to disappear quickly and quietly when great folks like you and I come blundering along like a herd of elephants. Right. And so that is a craft, if you will, and a skill. Um, I, I could, I think you could say it is innate in them, if only by virtue of their size. But it's also something that they have developed to a very high art. And I have to say, I was driving past a clump of pampas grass just yesterday, and it was waving in the wind. <laughs> <laughs> all I could think was, oh, "Where's Sadak Burroughs? <laughs> Where's Nori?" Right. <laughs> Somebody somebody got left behind. I don't see any other clumps oh of pampas grass anywhere. Oh, that's no good. That's no good. No, that's no good. Uh, you know, I, I, I've heard people say, if, let's say, the stranger is Gandalf, is Gandalf going to teach the hobbits how to settle down, and the hobbits are going to teach Gandalf how to wander? Because I think that, that if they are going to bring Gandalf in, which isn't totally, totally out of the lore, I mean, I found a few quotes that suggests that maybe Gandalf came, not using the name Gandalf perhaps, but in the Second Age. Um, I think that would be uh, the best way to do it, is to have there be a purpose to it and have it forge that bond between him and the hobbits or their predecessors. 
It's an interesting idea. Um, I what I recollect from Gandalf in the Second Age is that he went around amongst the elves mm. more than any peoples. It's certainly not impossible that he ran into some Harfoots along the way. Um, I don't know. I'd have to chew on that one. I, I guess I have sort of a visceral reaction to it. Gandalf, <laughs> but as I said, I, I can hold on to some of my personal theories fairly strongly, and I need to recognize that there are other possibilities. So I think the best example we've seen of Goetia so far is uh, Theo's sword health, mm, right. which is clearly blood magic. And any kind of blood magic implies some form of domination, because to take blood is a very, very ancient symbol for having power over. There's certainly some sinister happenings in uh, in the Southlands, especially surrounding Theo. I mean, I think you can sort of see a little bit of darkness in him before he even finds that that uh, sword, that hilt. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that uh, wasn't entirely just, clear. Did he find it? He, he found it before he showed it to his friend. He knew it was hidden under there. But he left it there, I guess, and then took his friend back to see it and then took it with him. I'm, I'm confused, but I suppose this is beside the point. Yeah, I can't tell. <laughs> so, Marilyn, you had one more theme for me. Uh, which was, I believe, fathers and sons, which is something that, you know, when you look at Tolkien and Christopher, huge part of Tolkien's life, um, you know, perhaps even Tolkien more in the loss of his own father at a young age. He, he lost out on that. Um, perhaps he's thinking about, uh, I forgot his name, but the priest who took a lot of part in raising him. So what are your thoughts on this theme? Well, I don't think Tolkien ever stated it himself as one of the core of the original, if you will. But the interesting thing is, the two earlier versions of the story of Numenor, of the Akalabeth, the Lost Road, and the Notion Cup papers, both included this notion of a father-son pair who shared dreams and who shared memories and who rediscovered a language which turned out to be the ancient language of Numenor. Mm. So there is a father and son tradition embedded in there. Now, he was writing these things in the 1930s. Um, I believe shortly after The Hobbit, but it was also 1936 was the year of three kings hmm. in England. So you have a question about kingship, about rulership. You have the abdication, which really, really shocked people. It's hard for us, I think, from our perspective to understand just how shocking that was to, to so many folks. And up to that point, there was a lot of dissension um amongst well maybe we should convince him to stay no maybe we shouldn't and and there was uh, actually a party called the king's party which was formed around that time and winston churchill was a part of it which again is kind of shocking to hear because it also involved people who were very supportive of what was going on in germany at the time mm. so incredible foment going on um you know the folly of people the falling back into war um, one of Tolkien's quotes is, reward on this earth is more dangerous for men than punishment. Um, he was just really worried sick because he'd been through it himself, and it looked like now his sons were going to have to face that same horrible, horrible experience. Father Francis Morgan, the priest you mentioned, um, had died in 1935. Mm. And if I remember correctly, Tolkien was unable to attend his funeral in person. Now, whether or not that was because of a commitment or because of an emotional stress, I don't know. But I'm pretty sure one of his sons went in his stead because Father Francis became much loved by his children as well. So all of these things combining the father-son 
um, pairings, the political foment, mortality, pretending disaster. And he had this dream, of course. I can't remember if you've talked about this yet. The 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 Atlantis dream, he called it, his Atlantis complex. In passing, we've mentioned it. We haven't gone great deep waves into it, but feel free to. Across the countryside. And, and so the great waves sweeping across the countryside, completely overwhelming him. And he wakes up from sleep, gasping for breath. He later found out that his son, Michael, had, had been having that very same dream. And wow. he hadn't known it until after... I presumably after a, a Calabeth came out and they talked about it and so forth. So another father son connection there, as well as, as you say, the very, very strong connection with Christopher. Right. It just keeps jumping out all over uh, in the series. And um, even the episode three title Adar, you know, father um, the, there's this whole, you know, I, I saw the funniest argument that it's not Sauron that I've seen yet is uh the orcs have too much affection for Adar for him to be Sauron. <laughs> it's a very interesting, uh, interesting concept. I mean, he did say, I'm not a god, not yet. Right. But that, you know, Sauron's a little petty. I could see Sauron saying that, even though he is one of the Maiar. I could see him comparing himself to the Valar and saying, I'm not a god. Because god is something, that's a word that you don't really see very often in Tolkien, probably a little bit because of the Catholicism, uh, but uh, you, you know it, it's being used pretty fast and loose in this show. Well, it is, and again, that you know how deeply lore bound do you want to be? He actually did refer to them as gods in the very earliest versions of the Book of Lost Tales. That's back mm -hmm. when the Valar looked a lot more like a sort of a, a mashup of the Norse and the Greek deities. Um, mm. But he did move away from that as he began to want more and more to take out overt religious references. And he was so very careful, as he put it, to ensure that his world could be read with comfort by somebody who believed in the Blessed Trinity, but equally by somebody who had no religion at all, because right. he felt it was fatal to any created secondary world to contain elements of the primary world. And for him, Christianity was far too much an element of the primary world. Right. He, he considered that historical. Um, you know, our our listeners can agree or disagree with that. But but Tolkien, if you want to understand his work, you have to take Catholicism as a truth to him. Exactly. Exactly. And if you are familiar with Catholicism, then you begin to see the little hints and glimpses and, and uh, whispers of it that are present everywhere. I mean, I mentioned Nienna before. She's very much an Our Lady of Sorrows. But right. he could never call her that. So I'm just just last night I was thinking watching the episode four, thinking of fathers and sons. So we've got Elrond and his lovely uh, discussion, you know, talk about his father Elrondil. Mm -hmm. um, we have the two Dordans, um, and that forever I'm with you, my son. There is nothing to forgive between father Doran and son Doran. Um, and in a way, even Waldreg was kind of trying to father Theo. I'm don't think he was leading him down a very good path. Um, but it's really interesting how they're bringing that in. And I don't know how much of that is conscious and how much of that is, you know, they don't know the connection with Tolkien or whatever. But certainly in its origins, um, Akalabeth was grounded in father-son relationships, which is really, again, very interesting to me. I mean, especially when you hear Tolkien talk about his own son. He, I have, I have a quote here from Tolkien's diary. 
that Christopher is a nervy, irritable, cross-grained, self-tormenting, cheeky person, yet there is something intensely lovable about him, to me at any rate, from the very similarity between us. Right. <laughs> so he, he has complicated feelings about his own son. He, he's annoyed with him because he's so much like Tolkien himself. Yes. Learn from my mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. Marilyn, it's been a pleasure having you on the Lorecast. When we get back from the break, we're going to have Aaron on for some listener feedback. And we're back. Aaron, what do you say we do some listener feedback? I'm all about listener feedback. All right. You want to hit us with the first question? Sure. Doug's up says, thanks for taking the question of Halbern last week. I'm sticking with the theory, although I potentially commend the show for showing things from a certain point of view. Obi-Wan Kenobi style. Halbern implying Galadriel would never want to know what he had to do in order to be on that ship and that he would be cast out if his people knew. Again, I think this is misdirection. Imagine the humiliation of the mighty lieutenant of Morgoth and having to live just the side of poverty and being forced to take the form of a fallen, exiled man-king. Living off of scraps and skulking in elf-patrolled Southlands, clinging to a raft in the ocean. He once commanded armies from some of the greatest castles in all of Middle-earth, but he uses his pow- if he uses his powers too soon. Even against a pretender like Adar, he'd be found out before he had his full strength. So a plan was set in motion, and yes, I say, again, he went to Numenor to eventually corrupt the leadership, and yes, find a way to create a weapon, a ring, to intensify his strength. He looked longingly at the smiths, and as it happens, he was an apprentice of uh, Aule before his own fall. See, I thought I, I, I thought I remembered the right pronunciation. <laughs> I guessed correct. Maybe tomorrow I'll guess wrong, but I guessed right today. This weapon, or ring, or even capital R rings he was intending to make, lacked Celebrimbor's own crafting skills, and might have been uh, only been made to corrupt and enslave the men of Numenor, and it might have taken much longer to build them. That might have been his original plan, but now that he was taken in by the elves, via fooled Galadriel and fooled Numenorians alike, he realizes he can first use them all to vanquish the pretender Adar, all without using magic. Prediction, he will use the army of Numenorians to establish order in the Southlands and get installed as the rightful king, Anatar I. He will unite the realm. Side note, could Anatar be a first name with the last name Halbrand? Uh, he then, at the end of the season, meets Celebrimbor as King Anatar, a knowing weak wink, just as Senator Palpatine says he has to keep an eye on Anakin. The ring plan is back, but now we can get the elves to do it for him. Yeah, um, I could... Definitely see Halbrand being Anatar, Sauron, like uh, we talked about earlier. I think that uh, it could be a first name, although there's a lot of characters without a last name in Tolkien's works, especially when you look at men. Does Anatar have a meaning? Does it does, does it have an etymology? In- Lord of Gifts. I wonder if that's going to be like a title that they bestow upon him. Could be. That would be interesting. Like He's going to open up his sack. He's like, Santa... That's it's he's got the Santa Claus sack. It's like the TARDIS. It's bigger on the inside, and he's just gonna he's gonna open that sack and pull out a bunch of nice things for the elves, <laughs> and they're gonna be like, "Oh, Halbrin, we're gonna call you Anatar because you're the Lord of Gifts." All right, I, I think it works. I, I think that sounds it, it, that even sounds like a title, right? Yeah, it does. The Lord of Gifts. 
Hmm. That's some good speculation. So, uh, I yeah, I think that your plans, Doug, are coming to fruition. And it's it's also theme of like a servant of evil corrupting something that other people were doing for good. Like the elves already seemingly have a Manhattan project of how we can inject Cimmerils up into us and keep us going forever and ever. <laughs> And maybe they're missing a piece. They're missing that. And, and Sauron was trying to find out something for his own purpose. And he was just missing. And he was expecting. He was looking in all the dark places to find that missing piece. But maybe the missing piece is the light. And he's mm. going to come in and be like, oh, you got this Manhattan project. Boy, it'd be, it'd, be real, it'd be a real shame if we injected some even more power into it. And we know Celebrimbor is very interested in doing something that kind of almost out outdoes is it Fionor? Is he the 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 Cimmeril? He was the guy who made him. Yep. Okay, so he's trying to outdoor Fion- outdo Fionor. Um, I, like I said, it seems like that that's 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 a good track to lay to get to that point. Yeah, yeah, I think that you're right. Uh, next up, I'm just gonna read this one because Billy wrote in last week. He he was the one who asked about wasn't it super amazing that Aaron deal. Uh, made it all the way to Valinor in the first stage, and we discussed how the Enchanted Isles were blocking uh, the way to Valinor during that age, but they were basically destroyed or at least weakened during the War of Wrath, during that war with Morgoth. So that's why it's much easier to go now. Billy writes back, though, and Billy wants to know, on second thought, I think that after the end of the first stage, the Noldor were pardoned, and now you actually can just sail to Valinor. Is that right? What is the truth? And the answer, Billy, is yes. Yes, the Noldor were pardoned and they could go back. Um, and the other part of it is the Enchanted Isles issue, is that those were there, now they're not, now you can sail more easily. So anyone could sail to Valinor at this point if you have a good enough ship. Now, it's still really hard. It still takes a really good shipwright, but you can do it. Yeah, I, it's, you know, maybe this is spoilery. But, like, I literally think, I, I, I was under the impression that at this point in time, literally anyone could. Like, yeah. it wasn't just an elf, like a, a Harfoot with a good enough boat and an understanding of navigational skills and experience could get to it. It's just, like, rounding the cape. Yeah. Uh, it's it's tough, but it, it's doable by anyone. Um, right. And the events of this series is going to lead to the breaking and remaking of the world so that can't ever happen again. Right, exactly. And, uh, I mean, there is a whole thing of, like, the elves and then the Numenorans, because they learn from the elves, have this yeah. superior shipbuilding skill, which allows sure. them to make this trip. But that it's basically a logistical thing rather than a magical thing. It's just it's a really hard trip to make on the sea. Aaron, do you want to read the next one for us? Delighted. Mark says, in your lore cast for partings, and in one of the prologue episodes, you mentioned how the Valar and Uru Arugula had played harmonious music that was to be descriptive creation, but how Melkor, Melkor or Morgoth played dissonance and started a whole lot of bad stuff because of that. I'm trying to figure out how to square this with the overall themes of the books and show, and also Tolkien's Catholicism, because to me, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I'm a musician and a college music theory professor, and I have to point out that dissonance is kind of what makes good music good. We like quote-unquote nice-sounding or harmonious music because of the dissonance and clashes that happen before and after it. Even simple, catchy pop songs are absolutely full of dissonance, and without it, music would be just the worst. We need contrast and variety, even if some of it is tough, and kind of like the feeling of hunger and how it makes a meal taste better. 
Is Tolkien suggesting that the Valar wanted a world that was totally uniform and without contrast? It seems like a lot of this work is about fate versus free will or choice and darkness versus light. Are we to understand that all of these dichotomies were to be thought of as bad by Tolkien or somehow inherently tainted by Morgoth? And how does this connect with the Catholicism element? Is this dissonance supposed to be considered something like original sin? I know Tolkien wasn't uh, most likely wasn't a musician, but I wondered if anyone else finds this particular metaphor kind of perplexing. I have some thoughts on this email, but I, I'm yeah. So like, I'm not a musician, but I am. I've studied a lot about religion and Christianity. Um, it's my understanding that Arugula, after Melkor had done all of his bullshit, essentially said. How do you not know that this wasn't all of my plan and that you have, by doing all of your bullshit, just brought my plan into its full fruition? Like, I think a lot of what he's saying here in critiques is like that maybe you did need some darkness in the light and Melkor was the agent to bring that in. And there that now that leads to some really deep questions in terms of like God. It's like, well, if Satan was one of his chief agents and he fell to darkness and tempted mankind and did all this. Did God intend all that? Did did God create evil? Did God allow evil to happen? Did God have the conditions set that evil could uh, could could come about? Um, but it was everyone's free will that kind of like you know they didn't have to do that. We could have lived in a boring mayonnaise world where everything was good and nothing ever bad happens. But you know, I that's those. I think those questions are at the heart of the Bible and therefore at the heart of Tolkien's work too, because. If God pulls the whole ah ha ha ha, uh, you actually serve my purposes in 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 its in its the fullness of time, then that means He did deliberately create evil and suffering and, and wickedness. Um, but all those things are in the Bible too. So that's, those are my thoughts on on hearing this. Yep, um, I think that's that's right. Basically, um, Mark, you are in luck because I actually studied music. In, uh, in college at some point. So I'll, I'll give you what I think is meant, sort of. So Morgoth, Melkor, is not just creating dissonance. He's creating something that is incredibly uncomfortable in the music. So let's pretend he made a Neapolitan six chord, which is a very, if you're not familiar with music theory, I know you are, Mark, uh, it's a very creative way to get tension to lead to a resolution and so melkor makes this chord that is just leaving us like oh what's that and then eru luvatar gives you that nice uh dominant chord and then the resolution eru luvatar is saying yes you've created this dissonance and i'm going to resolve it because all that you do in evil i will turn to good in the end and sort of you see that when you have Gollum being corrupted by the ring, but in the end, he's the one who accidentally destroys it. Because mm-hmm. all that Melkor and Sauron do in evil, Eruluvatar will turn into good. And so I think that that's what's meant by it. And also, to your point, Tolkien wasn't a musician. No, he wasn't. And he loved music, and his wife was a pianist. Uh, ah. And he wished that he could play music. And so that's why he wrote that creation story in the form of a music analogy. Hmm. You need a MIDI interface so you could play that sick ass dissonant chord and resolve <laughs> it for us. I know I should have I should have done that. Maybe maybe in post. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we also have Nobeline uh, who says hi. 
listening to John air out his beef with this episode's Silmaril stuff, I guess they wrote it in last week, and totally agree. Here's a theory. Is Elrond being deceived again in order to get his friend to turn over the mithril? Has Celebrimbor made up a dire situation about the elven race dying to get what he wants? Perhaps? I don't know. Otherwise, the stuff about elves' souls fading did seem super weird to me. What do you think, Aaron? I think that Gil-Galad and Celebrimbor aren't lying. I think that there is something up with their tree that seems pretty dire. Like, if their super tree is getting this corruption on its side and its leaves are starting to fall off and... I take it, I mean, like, I, I listened to your guys' podcast last week, and I understand the consternation of, like, how can this happen in a single season? How can this accelerate? But I think that's one of the reasons the elves are so alarmed and willing to do to such great lengths, because they don't know how or why it's happening either, but they understand, like, oh, my God, we're somehow bound to the fate of this tree, and it's kind of like the canary in the coal mine, and look how fast the corruption is spreading of that, and if we do our elf to tree uh trigonometry tables correctly <laughs> oh god it means we're going to be done by next spring like i i don't have a super big problem with that i didn't even have a big problem with the the what the the bullshit they pulled at the similar some silmarils the last Silmaril last last episode either but that's that's my thought what about you well i actually think that i have to read an email from marilyn arpukila the tolkien scholar she wrote into me didn't put it in the outline but uh, i just pulled it up now and she just listened to the Tolkien professor Corey Olson and was reminded of another lore breach. The elves' souls cannot be destroyed by anything. It's their bodies that fade. This is probably already showing up for them, but they may not be aware that this is part of Eru's design. And so are fearful and scrambling to find an explanation. I had already come up to suspect that the whole thing was an invention of Anatar and have been very disappointed that Gilgalad was so gullible. But there are some additional points. The silk, the sickening of the tree, just like the destruction of the tree, trees visually. The theme of seeking something to give you eternal life chiming with the fall of Numenor. Finding what they fear and giving them a means to overcome it, line from Halbrand, who seems to have learned it from Sauron. That really ties it in with Sauron's MO. Even the story of the light dark fight sounds like Sauron's view of the world. And who was it that covets Mithril? And what a coincidence that the elves and dwarves do act on this. It will result in a big pile of Mithril being dug up. I bet Doran's elvish tree, the gift from Elrond, is feeling just fine. And I'm feeling much better about it all. Mm. Okay. So with that, I think that she's saying, like, I think that this whole thing is a deception. And I'm hoping that, too, personally. I think that yeah. it could be that Sauron's just lying to Celebrimbor. Like, hey, buddy, you better fix this right now. So you think so? So that would that would make that's mutually Halbrand being Sauron is mutually incompatible with this theory because you'd yeah. have to be like behind the scenes the elves are already sheltering Sauron and he has either poisoned the tree to make it seem like something is going aw- awry and then lying to them about what they need to do to fix it so that he could that that actually makes a hell of a lot of sense but it mm-hmm. does completely blow up my Halbrand is Sauron theory. <laughs> I mean, not if. I mean, it seems like Celebrimbor has been working on this for a time. Not if Halbrand stopped by Eregion on the way to the coast to to fly uh, to go on a ship and meet up with Galadriel. So, but then how? But how would he end up in like this dire situation if he was in the elves' good graces? First of all, why would the elves, if some some filthy Southlander show, showed up and been like, "Hey, you just need to do this, that, and the other," and like, I, I don't know. That, that, am am yeah. I crazy, or is that it's a little sloppy. even more questions? 
Yeah, I think I think it's more likely that Hal Brind is something else if this theory is correct. And I like this theory a lot. So Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, we'll take bets, secondagentballmove.com, and uh, write in. Fiacra says, enjoying the podcast each week and wanted to comment on the whole Silmaril in a tree scandal. It's a scandal. A lot of people <laughs> are upset about the uh, Silmaril being in a tree, being a major lore break when they should already be in the sky, a fire pit in the ocean at the end of the first age. I don't see how they're getting that from this episode and a surprise at the reaction. I think people are getting upset not listening to what's actually being said on screen and are assuming the tree battle took place recently or at least in the second age and the Sim- Silmaril is still in the tree. It's not what I took from the scene at all. Elrond claims it was an apocryphal legend. Elves are, for all intents and uh, purposes, immortal, and we've heard Galadriel use the phrase, pass out of time and mind, or words to that effect in the prologue of episode one. Now, if I remember correctly, in the prologue of the first film, you do remember correctly. Combined with these two points make it pretty clear that, assuming it all actually happened, the tree battle took place so far in the past, its memory has passed into legend and is no longer seriously considered to be true. So points to having likely taken place in the first age. If I hit a great treasure in a tree and my arch nemesis found and tried to take it, I would not leave it there afterwards. Why does everyone assume the elves would be dumb enough to do so? I mean, they do seem to make dumb decisions whenever Cimmerils are involved, but still, Elrond uses the past tense was hidden. We know Fane or his sons took the Cimmerils and burned them and then disposed of them in fire and water. Oh, I'm sorry, it burned them. They didn't burn the Cimmerils. I don't know if it was definitively stated over what amount of time this took place and how far away was the ocean and the fire pit. Surely they would have had to travel to said destinations and one of them could have temporarily hid one in a tree for any number of reasons, such as taking a rest, visiting friends, or being whirled about a a balrog hot on his trail. I would assume that the Silmaril was removed from the tree after the battle and disposed of at a later time. Silmaril is my Galadriel. I've all... (laughs) in listening to this podcast, I've realized I've mispronounced Silmaril wrong since my days in junior high school. I've always been Simmaril. So I'm putting the L before the M. Ugh, it's really, really killing me. So I would say on the timing thing, the first stage, as far as the, the time between the making of the Silmarils and the end of the first stage, is really just like a few hundred years. It's actually a really short age uh, compared to the second and third ages. So I don't, hmm. I kind of don't buy that this was forgotten by the elves in uh, by the second age because they they were all pretty much around like Gilgalad, Elrond, they were all around at that time at the end of the first age, uh, mm-hmm. and, and especially Galadriel. Why would she forget? I mean, she went to Middle Earth because of the Silmarils. I'm sure she knew the status of them pretty much the whole time. So that that that's my issue with that. Um, I do agree with you. If there was a Silmaril in a tree, I really doubt that the elves were like, well, let's just leave it there. I guess I guess the lightning hit the tree. It's definitely not in there. We won't we won't double check. Uh, so that that's an issue that I have with that. You have any thoughts, Aaron? Yeah, I uh, I had a lot of similar thoughts to this lady when I was listening to you guys' podcast last week because like. I to me the light from the Silmaril through some kind of magical confluence of the Balrog's evil and an elf's righteousness focused through this living heart of a tree and purifying force of lightning. Um, I thought that was really cool. In the same way that like Galadriel can have a fraction of the light from you know Arendil kept in mm-hmm. a bottle, like the idea that this magical thing and I and I took it as like a skirmish in the war of the Sil- Silmarils. Right? It wasn't like 
the final disposition and also the fact that it's kind of filtered through Earth, kind of sort of is, you know, like a Cimmeril being lost in mm-hmm. Earth. I, you know, and, and also the, that guy was also keeping in mind that this all could be bullshit because Elrond saying that this is a legend, even right. considered the elves, even considered a legend. So it's like it might not be literally true and it could all be part of Sauron's manipulation of the elves that like, you know. But I, I wasn't as bar- bar- bothered by it because I, I, I'm like, yeah, I can easily see that, like, okay, yeah, after this, like, ooh, close call to Cimmeril, we need to, and it eventually <laughs> falls in a volcano or whatever. So I, I, I wasn't as nearly upset about it as, as you seem to be. Well, you know, I just finished reading the Silmaril, uh, the Silmarillion uh, again because I, I started reading it again for the season so that I was sort of fresh in my mind. And sure. the last few chapters really do lead up to this finality of the Silmarils are lost, and I believe it says they will not be found again until the world is remade. And it's a big, like, that is the end of the story of the Silmarils. And so the, I guess that's mm-hmm. why I was bothered by it. It was very, like, no, Tolkien the Catholic says you have to wait until the end times. You have to wait until Revelations to get the Silmarils back. So that's that's sort of why but I bothered not, but it. But they're not saying that, like, if they said that Mithril literally is the remnants of this Silmaril, I guess. But, like, we're saying it captured some of the light. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, there's lots of artifacts that capture some of the light, you know, that of, like, ca- you know, Silmarils captured some of the light of the, was it the lamps or the trees? I can't honestly remember. The trees. Yeah, so it's like you've always gotten like it's never as good as the original thing was, but it's always so like I, I just thought like yeah yeah at some point there was a battle and a Balrog took a swing and he missed and lightning and eh all and right. yeah it, it it was a a grayer especially since they're all shrouding this and like this is elf this is elf tall tales this is elf, an elf <laughs> Paul Bunyan story yep you know all right fair enough I'll keep going. Uh, I'm not a lore expert, but I don't think the Cimmeril being in a tree in itself is a lore issue. Yes, the whole Mithril tie-in is lore-breaking, but does Mithril being in Numenor play a critical role in the story? If they are not planting or planning or mentioning it in a series and it doesn't really affect anything, and lore aside, I think would make a good Mithril origin story. Fair enough. I do think the... I do think the whole needing Mithril to save the elves is ridiculous, though. I'm hoping it turns out to be Sauron up to shenanigans. In the background, as I do believe we have not seen him on screen yet, have heard it said that Gilgalad is too wise to be taken in. I would counter that wisdom does not protect one from being tricked, fooled, or making mistakes. A wise person takes new facts and information uh, on board, acknowledges they were wrong, and alters their stance in response. However, believing the elves are fading so quickly may be such a big mistake that it would be difficult to have Gilgalad come out of it without thinking like a fool, uh, though. One last note, while listening to this week's episode, Walking Home, this evening, one of your listeners asked if a Dar's gloved hand could have been burned by touching a mithril. Made me wonder if he could have been the elf defending the tree. Ooh. Could he have driven off or defeated the Balrog, but then removed the Silmaril and was burned one before one of the sons took it away to a pit or ocean? He poured all his light into the tree, combined with his burns and possible injuries from the Balrog. Could this have left him bitter and more susceptible to corruption? Bit of a stretch, but it's interesting thought that occurred to me. I think this final paragraph was put, yeah, down by the latest episode, like definitively, right? Talking about that he was like one of the original Sons of Darkness or whatever. Yeah. Uh, if he's so, yeah. if he's like one of the first first orcs, which it seems like that's what they're yeah. telling us, and that predates Galadriel yeah. even. He would never have gotten a chance to get burned by the Simmerils because that was before the right. Simmerils. That was before all that happened. No, the Silmarils. God damn it. I'm never going to get it right now. Because <laughs> now, now I'm, I think the correction is the right one and it's not. It's in your head. Um, 
It's in my head. Yeah, it's very cranberries. All right, last up we have Alex. So do y'all think that we will ever get mention of dragons or even the presence of them in Rings of Power? Even more specifically, do you all think that there will be callbacks to dragons like Glaurung and Ankalagan the Black? Part of me thinks that Rings of Power will want to avoid the presence of dragons as a way to separate them from House of the Dragon. If dragons were to appear in some way, how would you all like to see them utilized? What do you think, Aaron? I think Jeff Bezos is not shy about taking it to House of the Dragons. Uh, Their release strategy is very much evidence of that, that they are inviting the comparison, welcoming the comparison, thinking they can come off the better in the comparison. That remains to be seen. Um, So, yeah, I don't I don't think they give two fucks about their adaptation uh, in in opposition to the HBO project. Yep, I agree. I mean, it doesn't make that much sense to see dragons since pretty much all of them are dead except Smaug at this point. But, uh, you know, they might break it again. They might break the lore a little bit, which is fine. I like dragons. I like House of the Dragon. Yeah, there's a hidden dragon at the heart of the world that comes out at a certain point, And we can imagine a dragon. Um yeah, no, I, 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 yeah, I, I think you can always have just like you know how many Balrogs are there canonically? There's like a limited number, aren't there? Like twelve or thirteen? I don't or some remember kind of, the exact number. I don't it? remember if okay, there is I, an exact number. I thought there number. was. I thought I thought maybe Tolkien played with some biblical numerology, and that there's some numbers that are just kind of pleasingly perfect from a, a good or evil point of view, and there was like thirteen Balrogs or something. But but like yeah, if there's you know canonically one more Balrog that's been hiding out in this corner or that corner, if there's canonically you know non canonically one dragon who's been underneath this particular mountain for such and such a time, I you know if it's part of it's the rule of cool. You can do whatever you want as long as everyone thinks at the end of it, damn that was cool. Like you right. can even have Galadriel tank a pyroclastic cloud. If, you know, you make it cool enough and, and, and uh, you know, retroactively make it make sense. You know? So, like, yeah, if they want to have dragons, they'll, they can have dragons. I don't think, certainly not the House of the Dragons will scare them off of it. If they were that scared, they would have held this for a Christmas release. Right. Or a January, February, even spring release. But they clearly don't, yeah, they're not afraid. Um, I, I don't know what about their. I don't know if I agree with their bravado, but they clearly are not intimidated by HBO's production. You know what's funny is I saw recently that the numbers seem to show that Rings of Power is getting more viewers than House of the Dragon, which is shocking. Com- looking at the discourse, it is shocking mm. to hear that because I see so many people talking about House of the Dragon and not a lot talking about Rings of Power, and I think that that's a victim of the release time. Like I cannot watch this live with people. I cannot wait until midnight uh, and go to work the next day. And I'm sure that so many people are in the same place is that, you know, you need to have a prime time release time if you want to have that simultaneous conversation. Yeah, I first of all, I'm going to talk about the reasons that might be plausible. I've never seen a show advertised like Lord of the Rings, Hmm. like even now, six weeks, six episodes into it, I went to... um, what the hell did I just see? Oh, I went to the the Avatar re-release. Hmm. And there was two separate promotions for Lord of the Rings before the start of that movie. Um, every time you go on to Amazon Prime, it's in your face. If I'm using the Amazon app, it's on my face. The night that it premieres, it reminds me. Oh, wait. Like, can, I, they are, can I tell you what happened to me the other day with this? Please. I went to use... I have a Fire TV. And I used the voice command. I think I looked up... 
like the movie Coraline or something like that, something totally unrelated. Uh-huh. I said, play Coraline. And it said, playing Coraline, just so you know, The Rings of Power is now available on Amazon Prime. Oh my god. So yeah, they're do this is the, uh, the I've never seen this kind of flogging towards something by Amazon. Certainly not with the expanse. Um I've never seen anything like this before. Uh so like that's why the, I could believe the numbers. Here's another I it, to my to my mind or to to my recollection, none of these numbers have been independently verified by anybody like Nielsen or mm. uh there's another like uh there's a peop, uh outfit I forget we did this in a feedback podcast like in the third episode where there's a third party that's partnered with a lot of smart TV manufacturers that they actually sample the pixels that are on a Mm -hmm. a TV at any given time and match that against a known library and they can like empirically say like this household is watching this movie or this TV show or blah blah blah. all this this horrifying invasion of privacy that's going on all the time Um, and their numbers were quite a bit lower than what Amazon is self-reporting so I know as a podcaster that if someone asked me, hey, how many downloads you get, I could tell you how many unique listeners that we get that are pinned down to IP and geographical tags and uh, player statistics and stuff like that. Or I could tell you how many bits are actually being transferred, Hmm. divide that by how many bits are in an episode of podcast and come up with a completely inflated bullshit because I know through streaming – you know, if someone listens to my podcast and they're streaming it on their phone, they might have downloaded that thing 1.75 times before they're done got, getting done listening to it because they stop, they buffer, hmm. you know, they transfer cell towers and they get it, you know, and, or the the Amazon EC2 server switches and stuff. So that these are all things that the internet advertisers have cracked down on because you you could completely f- uh, fabulize your podcast stats depending on how you reported it. And Amazon is a, uh, you know, they are not elves. They are not men before the fall. They're men post-fall, post-capitalism, and they will lie and bend narratives to, I don't think they would outright lie and make things up, but there's certain ways you can slice and dice these metrics that would seem impressive from an outsider, but if you asked the right questions and got to the right law, like, you know, if you had to report this to, like, shareholders and... and, um, and, and advertisers, it might be a different story. So, like, I, when I look at the amount of feedback we're getting, when I look at the activity in subreddits and forums, when I look at, like, when I look at the, the memes that come out on the days after uh, on social media, I cannot believe that Lord of the Rings is having a bigger impact. Right. Unless it's literally just a bunch of families who are not doing podcasts or not, like, it's like... You know, I and I can see that if I'm 40 years old and I love, I, I grew up with uh, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, and I got a an eight or nine year old, I'm bouncing on my knee. It's like, oh boy, you're gonna see. You know, I could I could see that, but plus you just have the the amount of people who have Amazon Prime accounts for totally unrelated reasons compared might to have HBO like- Max. Yeah, it's like, you know, I've always wanted to try this Amazon Prime video thing out, and boy, I really like Lord of the Rings, right. now's the time to do. And, you know, also, like, those first two episodes are fucking fire. Yeah. They were exactly what you needed to do to get people interested and invested. So, like, but I, I honestly think there is a little bit of playing games at the numbers. Um, but I, who knows? Like I said, it, um, it doesn't seem from a wider cultural perspective to be having as big of an impact as House of the Dragon, but... I don't know. That's just my perspective. No, I totally agree. And I, again, like I said, I think part of it is the release time. 
Um, but part of it is, I think that the writing has just been a little better and deeper on House of the Dragon. Yeah. Like, there's just there's more to debate with House of the Dragon, whereas yeah. I think that things have been a little bit more straightforward. It's weird because it's straightforward, but I have no idea what's going on in, in right. Rings of Power. Because they have all these mystery boxes, but they feel a little artificial. Right. Like, imagine if um, Rhaenyra and Alicent and, uh, you know, had this, like, enmity between them, but they never explained why. Right. Like, you know, what they're like, but, like, it's it's a mystery. It's, like, it's so much more satisfying to see and understand why, and as as each, each brick is layered in their wall of hate, you're like, oh, that fits in perfectly with what we know. Whereas there's so many just question mark, question mark, question mark things about... Not everyone, because I think Galadriel has a pretty fully fleshed out like backstory mm-hmm. and why she's doing the things she's doing and all that kind of stuff. But so many people are like, you know, Halbrin, who is he? What's his pouch? What has he done? Right. Ellen, you know, uh, you know, Ellen Deal. Why is this family elf lovers in a non-elf loving place? And what's going on at the Western Shores? And why is this woman calling to? Him? And what? Like, there's so many questions and there's you can have a few mystery boxes, but mm-hmm. like so many of the main characters are just kind of like, why are they doing the things that they're doing? Why are we not privy to the things that they clearly know? Like, right. does Isildur not recognize his own goddamn mother? <laughs> like, why is like why isn't he articulating that to anyone? Like, you know, I just heard my, I, you know, I, I was call me crazy, but I was sailing over to Western Shores. I heard mom calling to me. Like, why doesn't he just say that to his sister or his dad? Uh, yeah, especially in a know. world where mystical things are happening, it's it's not necessarily sure. you're crazy. Um, sure, or a nice prompt would be when your dad says, you know what, I'm thinking about t- teaching you some of your mom's horse lore. Uh, you know, speaking of mom, <laughs> dad, been oh, hearing her yeah. call to me. That's why I've been acting so weirdly. It's like, why? Why are these things not, right. like, it would be, I think it'd be better if they, they were. But, you know, again, <sighs> these guys, from my understanding, wrote some fan fiction in college and did some crappy Swords and Sandals miniseries uh, for disreputable networks, and now they've been handed the keys to a billion-dollar empire. So, you me know, and Jim would not do better. I guarantee you. Maybe we should get a Change.org petition going to get you and Jim running the Rings of Power. <laughs> it, promise you'd be a downgrade. Promise you'd be a downgrade. <laughs> But I wouldn't have Galadriel tank a pyroclastic cloud. You got you got my the, my guarantee on that. If she in fact does, maybe she gets burnt to a crisp, and the next episode she wakes up on the shores of Valinor, being like, "Fuck!" <laughs> oh my god, you she's know- in the halls of Ma- Mandos or whatever. God damn it! Record scratch. You might be asking yourself, "How did I get here?" Well. <laughs> You watched the previous six episodes, right? I tanked the pyroclastic cloud. Wasn't the best idea. Oh, my God. You know, it's funny. People on Discord, I I said to them, I don't even know what to cover on this episode at first glance because there's so little true lore. It's mostly just, like, spectacle in this episode or or things like that. And uh, somebody said, why don't you do a thermodynamics segment? (laughs) Because uh, it seems like the show's lacking on that. Yeah, uh, but put, uh, put aside the Tolkien scholar, call a volcanologist, right. and uh, walk, walk him through it. There you go. All right, Aaron, any other thoughts you have on the episode before we wrap things up? No, but it's it's going to be it's it's going to be interesting because I'll be back next week to to do this again, and I guess we can we can grade how how they they recovered from the cliffhanger of this episode. Uh, that'll be exciting. 
And surely with the penultimate with, with, with the Belton episode, there has to be some answers. We have to start piecing some things together too. I'm I'm really looking forward to getting back to the Harfoots, maybe. Absolutely. And where can people find you? Uh, where can people find me? I hang out at baldmove.com. Uh, if you want to follow us on twitter.com slash baldmove, that's where we kind of post most of our uh, releases and our upcoming strategies and all that stuff. But yeah, baldmove.com. Talk uh, television and film with my buddy, buddy Jim. Very cool. All right, Aaron, thanks for joining us. And we will see you guys next week. Looking forward to it. The Rings of Power Lorecast is produced by the Lorehounds and published by Bald Move. You can send questions and feedback about this podcast to secondageofbaldmove.com or write into Jim and Aaron at dug2deep at baldmove.com. For all Lorehounds content, subscribe to our Firehose feed, The Lorehounds. And for more Rings of Power content, subscribe to dug 2 deep on your favorite podcasting platform. Check the show notes for reading recommendations and more info. Thanks for listening. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond.